Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week on the Q&A podcast, Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley discusses his biography of Thomas Sowell, entitled Maverick. For the past 50 years, conservative economist and social theorist Thomas Sowell, who's black, challenged conventional thinking on topics from social inequality to racial justice, contemporary culture, and of course, economics, through his widely read column, his lectures, and more than 30 books. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. This whole notion that this is the black family has always been disintegrating, that, that is nonsense. That his, his studies go up to 1925, the great bulk of black families were intact, two-parent families up through 1925, and going all the way back through the era of slavery. So it is now only within our own time that we suddenly see this inevitable tragedy which the welfare system says it's going to rush in to solve. It's been 40 years since the show aired, and Thomas Sowell's writings continue to illuminate. Whether the topic is race, crime, immigration, or so many other subjects, his scholarship remains as relevant as ever. Racists may prefer one race to another, but they prefer themselves to everybody else. Thomas Sowell is a trained economist. He's a sociologist who has written books about virtually every culture that's ever existed. He is a photographer. He is America's greatest contemporary living philosopher. Jason Riley, that is a clip from a documentary you did on the life of Thomas Sowell, and you have uh, actually topped that with a brand new biography of him with, titled Maverick. Why so much interest on your part in Thomas Sowell's life? Uh, well, for, for, for a couple reasons. Um, one, I think that, uh, as, the, as the video clip uh, you just played showed, uh, many of the debates that we're having today um, are things that he's written about uh, quite extensively. Over, over the decades. So I think his research and his scholarship is still quite relevant um, to our, our, our current policy debates, whether the topic is uh, inequality or, or affirmative action or minimum wage laws or slavery reparations or what have you. Uh, Thomas Sowell is someone who has written extensively uh, about this uh, over the decades, and I, I would argue has been quite right in, in what he has written. Uh, so that is one reason I wanted to uh, uh, to write the book and, and do the documentary. Um, the, the other reason is I, I don't think that Sol is as well known as he should be. Um, you know, I, I think it's quite uh, unfortunate, if not tragic, that um, individuals like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and, and Nicole Hannah-Jones and Cornell West are, are better known than Thomas Sol. Um, I think he has, quite frankly, written circles around those individuals, maybe around all of them put together. And it's not simply the uh, volume of his work that is unmatched by their own, uh, but also the range and the depth and the rigor of Sowell's thinking is something that I, I don't think they come close to matching. So one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and do the documentary is to uh, raise awareness about Sol, particularly to a younger, a younger generation that may not have come across his work. If he is lesser known than the people you cited, why is that? Well, I, I would argue that, uh, you know, today, to, to use today's parlance, uh, Sol was canceled. Uh, he was canceled a long time ago when he turned to writing about racial controversies, particularly in the 1970s. And um, uh, he was a critic of affirmative action. He was a critic of the direction of the civil rights movement in the wake of the passage of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, when they turned their attention away from uh, equal opportunity and towards special treatment for blacks, uh, Tom was quite critical of, of that of that change in priorities uh, and also of their focus 
uh, less on um, self-development, which had been the focus up until then, and more of a focus on integrating political institutions, uh, electing black officials, thinking that if we can just get more of our own into office, so to speak, uh, the rest will take care of itself. Uh, Seoul was quite critical of, of that change in priorities among the black leadership. And, um, and he paid a price for that. Um, you know, the, 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 the people that uh, run the academies, that uh, run the foundations, uh, that uh, control most of the mainstream media tend to be people on the left. And, and Seoul refused to play footsie with them. He was quite critical. Uh, black leadership in particular um, uh, told those people in the media in particular that uh, uh, Seoul is not someone you should turn to to get his views on these racial controversies. Uh, and Seoul was so, uh, sort of canceled uh, in that sense. And I think that is uh, largely why he is not as well known today as the, as the names I mentioned earlier. You've titled your biography of him Maverick. Tell me about that word, what it means to you, and why he fulfills its definition. Well, I, I chose that title um, because Seoul is something, you know, he sort of distinguished himself uh, by doing something that, that really shouldn't distinguish you as an intellectual or a scholar. And that is simply um, telling the truth, being honest, um, uh, following the facts where they lead, even when they lead to politically incorrect conclusions that may make you unpopular. Uh, Seoul has not been bothered by such considerations. He has simply done the research, followed the facts, and reported the findings. He has not sugarcoated them. Uh, and, and, and that is how he has distinguished himself. And unfortunately today, um, a lot of intellectuals, a lot of scholars um, put popularity above truth. They put political correctness above uh, simply stating the facts. Um, they're fearful of, of, of being called names, of, of, of getting a, a social media mob after them and so forth. And Tom is not someone who has con concerned himself with those things throughout his career. And I think that makes him uh, a maverick. And that's why I chose that title. You describe Maverick as an intellectual biography. What will readers get from it? Well, it is a focus on his on his ideas primarily. Um, I, I don't uh, uh, spend uh, most of the book talking about his personal life, although I do spend some time doing that. I think uh, that's certainly necessary. Those ideas that he's best known for came from somewhere, and 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 in many cases, it was his personal experience, which he has has uh, said informed uh, many of his ideas. Um, he had a very interesting upbringing, and uh, and I do talk about that. Uh, in the book, um, but it is primarily a treatment of his scholarship, uh, what his legacy will be, how he's distinguished himself as an intellectual uh, over the decades. Uh, Thomas Sowell is a trained economist. If you uh, were to give people a shorthand way of thinking of, about his central economic theories, what would that be? Um, uh, well, he's He's an empiricist, I guess, is uh, uh, the simplest way to put it, uh, in, this, in the tradition of the University of Chicago School of Economics, where he earned his Ph.D. under uh, the guidance of, of individuals like Milton Friedman and George Stigler. And um, the Chicago Economics Department uh, distinguished itself by, um, from you know, the MITs or, or the Harvards uh, of the world uh, with its focus on empiricism. At, at those other places, economics was more about theory and math. Um, uh, at, at, at the University of Chicago, 
it was more about how economics could be applied to everyday problems um, and, and about uh, in an empirical way, using data, using evidence uh, to, 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 to analyze everyday problems. And, and Sol comes out of that tradition. Um, you know, the first book he wrote was an, an economics textbook for college undergraduates, and it's full of graphs and, 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 and explanations of the elasticity of demand and all of that stuff. Uh, but his best known book is called Basic Economics, and it's essentially an economics textbook with no graphs and charts and jargon written for the general public. Um, and uh, Tom is quite proud of that work. Um, and I think it, it, it's evidence that his focus uh, in terms of using his uh, training as an economist is really to explain his discipline uh, to people who are not trained in economics. It's something that um, his mentors like Milton Friedman did after leaving uh, teaching at Chicago in the 70s. Um, and Tom has, has done that as well. Most of his books are not written for his peers in the academy. Uh, they're written for everyday people, for general interest audience. And, um, and, and, and like Friedman, Sol felt that the, the duty of a scholar is not simply to talk, to talk to your intellectual peers, but to explain your discipline to, to the general public. Is basic economics still in print? Oh, yes. It's uh, very much in print. I believe it's in its fifth edition now. It's been translated into several different languages. And, um, and, and as I said, it's his best-selling book. You describe his uh, scholarship as very broad-ranging, but you tell readers, of course, that he's best known for his writing on race mm -hmm. and racial policy. If you were to distill his four or five decades of writing about racial policy issues in this country, how would you distill them? What, what are the overarching themes that he conveys to his readers? Well, I, I think the best way to understand uh, Sowell's writings, or, or to understand where he's coming from, I should say, uh, in his writings, um, whether they be about race or, or economic history or sociology or what have you, um, is to understand his writings on um, political philosophy and social theory. Uh, and, and that book, uh, he lays out that, that framework in a book called A Conflict of Visions. Uh, which is a book about um, how our many of our policy disputes today can be traced to uh, different views of human nature and how the world works. And he uh, defines them as uh, the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision, or sometimes he calls the unconstrained vision uh, uh, the tragic vision. Uh, or I'm sorry, sometimes he calls the unconstrained vision the utopian vision, and sometimes he calls the constrained vision the tragic Vision. And what he's talking about there is uh, when, he, when he uses a term like uh, the unconstrained or the constrained vision is um, a view that there are, are, are limits to human betterment, um, that uh, we may want to solve um, crime or end poverty or racism and so forth, but that's not likely to happen. Uh, and so the best that we can do is to put in place uh, institutions and processes that help us deal with problems that we're probably never gonna solve entirely. So uh, you may not like war, um, you may want world peace, but it's unlikely to happen. So you probably should create a defense department and, 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 and prepare for being attacked and having to use arms uh, to defend yourself. Um, you may wanna end crime, but that is probably not gonna happen. So you probably need a judicial system, a rule of law, uh, where people can go to uh, have their 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 disputes adjudicated and so forth in the fairest way possible, and he contrasts this view with this unconstrained or utopian view 
of the world, uh, which says, um, no, no, we, uh, there are no real limits to human betterment. It's really just a matter of reason and willpower. And we can not only uh, manage uh, these problems that we have today, like poverty or inequality, but we can solve them if we put our minds to it. And, and, and Sowell argues that depending on which of these views you hold, it will really tell you a lot about where you're going to come down on any manner of, of public policies, from you know, tax policy to, to rent control and to zoning laws and to military spending and so forth. And I think that that book, which is, which is part of a, an informal trilogy that he wrote, the first one was called The Conflict of Visions, and then he wrote a follow-up called The Vision of the Anointed, and a third one called The Quest for Cosmic Justice. And those latter two go into more detail about um, uh, critiques of the visions themselves. But in the first book, A Conflict of Visions, he's really just laying out this intellectual framework on which to, to view the world. And I think if you want to understand where Thomas Sowell is coming from uh, on any of the topics that he's writing about, uh, that Conflict of Visions book is the one to read. And he does take uh, a more tragic view, a more constrained view of human nature. And his writings on race that is uh, entirely evident, uh, and, and that is what he has he has uh, been 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 hammering home for decades on on the racial issue. And I guess his his big takeaway in his writings on race and culture and ethnicity is that um, uh, racism and discrimination and bias uh, is not an all-purpose or blanket explanation for racial disparities that we see today. And too often when we discuss racism or when we discuss disparities, I should say, in social inequality, um, that is the view that people are operating from, um, that, that, that but for racism, we would not have this inequality, but for bias, but for the nefarious actions of third parties, we would not have these racial gaps in, 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 in education or earnings or employment and so forth. And Tom really um, takes that to task in his writings over the years, showing that, uh, racism still exists and racism can have uh, an impact on these outcomes, but it, 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 it does not stand up as an, as an all-purpose explanation for the disparities we see today. Uh, I want to play a clip of uh, Thomas Sowell. He gave an interview to C-SPAN back in 1990, and he actually talked about this book, A Conflict of Vision. Let's listen to what he had to say about it. What's your favorite book out of the 14? Oh, A Conflict of Visions. Why? I think it's what is most, what is more mine than anything else in the sense that um, it doesn't build upon any theory that anyone else has or anything that's already out there in the literature. Uh, and it's an attempt to, to explain why people reach different ideological positions from one another. How two people similarly informed, similarly well-meaning will, will meet, will reach opposite conclusions, not just on a given issue, but on the whole range of issues. So uh, in these tragic vision versus utopian vision, does it help us understand why our country is in such a deep partisan divide right now? Um, to some extent, uh, yeah, we're, because these two the people who hold these two, these two visions are often talking past one another. And um, I think you see a lot of that going on today. Um, I, I think today you, you have a... Um, Slightly, I would say that you'd have you have that problem that Sol's laying out in a conflict of visions, but you have other things going on on today uh, that I think are driving divisions. Uh, namely, um, uh, I, I would I would point to our industry, the news media, 
and um, uh, you know, I'm 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 old enough to remember when um, most Americans had uh, three channels to get their news from: Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings and Dan Rather, and 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 that was about it. And uh, today, of course, we have cable news and we have social media and so forth. And I don't think I'd, I'd argue, or anyone would really argue, go, going back to to the old days. Um, but there has been a cost. There has been a trade-off, and and that trade-off has been that. Um, you know, pe- people can tune into to, to news outlets and, and have their own ideas reinforced over and over again. Or they can set up their phone or their computer with a news feed that simply is going to tell them what they want to hear over and over again. And, and the result of that is that I think um, um, people are largely talking past one another. Uh, one, one news service may be focusing on a whole different set of issues or, or the same issues in an entirely different way that uh, make them entirely unfamiliar. Uh, to someone who is not steeped in, in what they've been saying on that network or, or, or through that news outlet uh, over, over the course of weeks or months and so forth. And, and so I think uh, when you talk about the divisions that we have today, I think a lot of that is being driven uh, by the sort of proliferation of, of news outlets that we have and people tending to tune into what they want to hear. I mean, as, as, a, you know, as a journalist, I sort of out of, out of professional duty uh, flip around uh, when I'm watching the nightly news. I might flip on Fox and flip on MSNBC and flip on CNN and and so forth and, and do the same things on, on Sunday mornings. But um, I think that is increasingly rare in society. And, and, and that is, I think, a, a big part of, of what's driving a lot of these divisions we have. In Maverick, you report that as early as 1995, Dr. Sowell worried about, quote, truly dangerous prospects of polarization. What was he seeing back then? Well, I, 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 I think that I, I say that partly in jest, I mean, <laughs> but um, um, I think he is something of a worrywart, and that's just a personality. And he, and he is a relentlessly pessimistic about, about the course of the, of the country and, and the way things are headed. So, um, so that, was, that was said partly with that, with, with that in mind. But um, w- one thing he has pointed to, and, and it's interesting because here we are, some 40 years later or so, and, and we're talking about this again, is the, the during the 1980s, um, uh, during uh, our schools and, and our uh, education curriculums um, began stressing multiculturalism to an extent that they hadn't before. And, and Seoul saw this as um, uh, a move towards the balkanization of, of Americans. And, and he viewed that as dangerous in, a, in an increasingly pluralistic society when you had uh, the number of the Asian population growing and the Hispanic population growing and so forth, uh, the idea that you, would, that you would teach children to focus on their differences instead of what brings us together as Americans, he thought was, a, was dangerous. And I think that's something that, um, you know, we've, we've come full circle now with critical race theory being pushed uh, in, in, in school curriculums, the 1619 project and so forth. Uh, again, all of these efforts to, to teach children to, to focus on, 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 on their racial differences and, and, and their ethnic differences. And, um, and, and you think about, you know, where this is headed if, 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 this, if this movement succeeds and in infiltrating our, our, our school curriculum to the extent that they, that they want to, which, you know, children, second, third, fourth graders, and so forth. Um, so, so there's this notion out there that uh, America's, you know, diversity is its strength. And Seoul has pushed back at this uh, and said, no, our strength is not our 
diversity. Our strength has been our ability to overcome the problems that come with diversity and, and, and focus on what brings us together, what unites us as Americans, despite those differences. That, that is our strength. And, 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 and so Saul, Saul saw where we were headed uh, uh, decades ago uh, in terms of this debate today over, over uh, critical race theory in schools, I think. Well, just picking up on that theme and understanding his work, if he, in fact, acknowledges through it that racism exists and it could exacerbate disparities, mm -hmm. did his work offer solutions for our society to those problems? He has largely steered steered away from from offering solutions and seen his role as more to you know, point out what what has been tried in the past, what's worked, and and what hasn't worked. Um, and he's not someone who who believes uh, that uh, that that there is a silver bullet that there, there is a solution, quote unquote, to solve many of these problems. And again, that comes out of that constrained view of human nature that he has, that, that, um, that tragic view, um, uh, vision that, he, that he's laid out in, in his work. He says there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Um, uh, you, you take something like uh, the minimum wage law. Uh, if, you, if you increase the minimum wage law, um, people who make minimum wage and keep their job will be better off. But there will also be people who won't get hired to begin with because they become too expensive to hire. There will be people whose hours will be cut because they need to be paid more per hour. So while you've solved, quote unquote, solved one problem, you've created some other problems. And that is the, the, the realm that, that Seoul Scholarship deals in, trade-offs. What, what are the benefits? What are the costs? And, and very often those with this utopian view uh, only look at the benefits and, and either deny that there are costs or ignore what those costs are. And Sol says that's a mistake. I want to spend some time on his biography because, as you referenced, it greatly shaped the person he became, the thinking that he has contributed. So tell me about where he was born and his early years. Uh, sure. So, so um, Sol turned 91 years old um, uh, in June of this year. Um, he was born in 1930. In, uh, in the Jim Crow South, uh, uh, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte. Um, he was orphaned as, as a child, um, uh, taken in by a distant relative, um, and, and who moved the family to, uh, to Harlem when Sol was about nine years old. That's where he was raised, and that's where he attended school. And he was a, a very bright student, but he had a rather tumultuous home life and ended up dropping out of school. And, and, and never graduated from high school, left home at the age of 17, and uh, sort of did a bunch of menial work just trying to support himself. And let's go. eventually he was uh, drafted into the Marines during the Korean War, and it was in the military. He was in the, in the Marines for two years where he sort of uh, began to turn his life around, um, uh, develop some self-discipline, um, some direction in his life, and when he got out of the Marines, he um, uh, went to night school at Howard University on the GI Bill, uh, and then transferred to Harvard, where he completed his undergraduate degree at the age of 28 years old. So he got quite a late start. Uh, and then he went on to uh, Columbia University for a master's, and then on to the University of Chicago for, uh, for his PhD. Couple of, and, can um, I jump in before yeah, you get too sure. far along? Because there was a character in his early years that you wrote about that I wanted to hear more about his influence. Someone by the name of Eddie Mapp. Oh, sure, sure. I, I believe um, 
um, Eddie Mapp comes up in the documentary film, actually. Okay. And um, uh, this was a person that uh, the family knew um, before they even moved to Harlem and made sure that, um, that, that Tom and Eddie connected once he arrived. So Sol had someone uh, to, to sort of show him the ropes. And uh, Eddie Mapp's family was an immigrant, a black immigrant family from the, from the Caribbean. And um, Mapp showed him around Harlem, uh, took him to the library for the first time, um, told him that if he didn't like his, his local school, he could transfer to a better school, which Tom did. Um, little things like that, they, they seem little at the time, but even something as simple as introducing Tom to a library, Tom describes as a, as a life-changing experience. So this was someone who had a, a huge impact on, 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 on his life, and it's uh, something he's always remembered and continues to talk about to this day. In his uh, years in the Marine Corps, in the documentary, you also talk about him learning a new skill, which is photography. We have a clip from that, and uh, let's watch that, and I want to talk with you a little bit more about how he's used photography in his work over the years. Thomas Sowell may be an academic by training, but he is not one to rely solely on books. To gather material for his extensive writings on culture and migrations, for example, he became a boots-on-the-ground researcher who traveled the world. As an amateur photographer, he often documented these trips through the lens of his camera. His purpose was to try and understand the role of cultural differences, both within nations and between them. And not only today, but throughout history. So how did the Marine Corps introduce him to photography? Well, um, uh, I think he had some interest in it before he uh, entered the Marine Corps, actually. Um, I'm not sure that that was his first introduction to it. But when he found out that um, uh, there was a department in the Marine Corps to which he could put his skills to use and learn more about photography, he jumped at it. So I think he became more expert at photography as a result of his, uh, of, of his uh, scent in the, in the Marines. And um, as we just heard in the documentary, as he's traveled the world in, um, in his research and his scholarship over the decades, he has documented uh, a lot of his travels uh, uh, with his camera. And um, I'm, I'm not a professional photographer and don't know a lot about photography, but I have spoken to people who do and have seen his work, and they tell me that it is quite, quite good, that, that this is something that Tom Sowell could have uh, become a professional uh, photographer if, if he had wanted to. It's that, it's that good. Um, but I think largely he's used it as um, um, an escape from, from, from writing uh, and research, um, a, a hobby. And, and so um, it, it's something he's, he's, he's turned to to take his minds off uh, a lot of the issues that he writes about. I wanted to spend a, a little bit more time on understanding his path into economics and his path to Harvard. It's not a normal course for someone with mm -hmm. a GED to matriculate at Harvard College. So uh, you wrote a sentence that I wrote. It, it would be difficult to exaggerate the severity of Sol's learning curve when he entered college. So, uh, so how did he overcome his education gap and make it to Harvard? Well, as I said, he, he was always a bright kid and recognized as such by, um, by teachers in school, uh, IQ tests and so forth. Tom, Tom was bright. He also says that um, um, despite being orphaned, uh, uh, never knowing uh, his mother or father, um, 
the the distant relative that took him in was a great aunt who had two adult children uh, one of whom was married and so Sol lived with four adults in some of his formative years and he talks about um the importance of that in his language development and his skill development and so forth um we we know the literature on on only children and 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 how much uh, and their outcomes versus uh, the kids who come later the younger siblings uh and not only only children um but as i say the firstborn um and soul talks about how it was as if he was an only child being raised by four adults and he thinks that that gave him tremendous advantages um um growing up um but um he started out as 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 a marxist in in, in his intellectual thinking which again would not be uncommon for someone uh born at the time that he was born and uh during a period when when blacks were going through what they were going through in America at that time and and he talks about uh, having these menial jobs this would be in the 1940s in in New York City one of which was a, as a messenger for Western Union and he would uh, which was located down in, in in lower Manhattan in the Wall Street district and to get home uh Sol would sometimes ride a double decker bus uh which would take him up to to Harlem which means he had to traverse basically the length of of the island of Manhattan and he would just you know he he would get on the bus and would go past these fancy shops on Sac you know Saks Fifth Avenue and so forth these um these ritzy shopping districts and then it would go past Carnegie Hall and then it would go up Riverside Drive through a rather wealthy residential neighborhood and then he would cross this viaduct and uh there would be the tenements and that's where he would get off and he would say you know what just happened why why did uh, uh things look like what they looked like down there when i got on the bus and throughout most of my ride and and then they look like this up here and he says that marx explained that um at the time uh in a way that he found very satisfactory uh very satisfying and and um and soul remained a marxist uh through his years uh at 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 harvard uh even while studying under these uh free market giants like Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago soul remained a marxist and it was um a job in government uh in the early 1960s that ultimately uh got him to change his mind about marxism and socialism in general working for the government and and studying um minimum wage laws at the department of labor and recognizing uh the harm that they were doing to um uh the employment prospects uh particularly of uh low income minorities and and this caused uh, Tom to rethink his whole view of the benevolence of 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 government uh and government programs in particular when it comes to helping uh disadvantaged groups so it was a it was a life experience that really um uh, changed his views um uh but so was uh you know he, he encountered a lot of incredibly influential uh and bright people and noteworthy people uh throughout his studies he studied under Gary Becker a Nobel economist at at Columbia um he studied under uh Friedrich Hayek another Nobel economist when he was at the uh University of Chicago Um so these people were coming in and out of out of Tom's life uh they recognized his talent at the time and um um and and then they were obviously turned out to be right about that. Well there may be some who aren't familiar with the the economic theory that uh, that imbues this the University of Chicago School of Economics. Can you talk a little bit about uh its 
position in the world of economists and economic thinking? Sure. Well, as I said earlier, what really distinguished the school was its focus on on empiricism um, and, and, and the practical uses of, of uh, economics. Uh, at these other schools um, like MIT and Harvard, uh, there really was a, uh, economics was about math. It was about elegant theories. And, and that is not what was stressed at the University of Chicago. It was the, the practical uses of economics. And that is what um, um, Sol is focused on in his writings uh, about economics, at least his writings for the general public. Now, Sol started writing about economic history, uh, the history of economic thought, the history of ideas. Um, his real expertise are people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo and Thomas Malthus, these classical liberal economists. And that is um, uh, what Sol studied initially uh, at the University of Chicago uh, under, under people like George Stigler, who was also an expert in the history of economic thought. Um, and, and Sol taught economics uh, throughout the 1960s at schools like Howard University, where he had attended, uh, as well as at places like Cornell. Uh, he would later teach at Amherst and UCLA. So he spent a couple decades in academia teaching economics as well. But in his writings for the general public, his focus has been on, on the practical uses of, of economics and really spreading economic literacy. He stresses the importance of economic literacy uh, to people who are, who are not economists. Uh, perhaps that you've just answered it, but I'm curious about why someone who was a Marxist in his thinking would apply to a school known for its market uh, focus, and likewise, why they would be interested in him as a student. Well, um, he wanted to study um, the history of economic thought under George Stigler, um, which is why he was at Columbia for his master's. Um, and he had planned to stay at Columbia. Um, he went to Chicago because Stigler took a job at Chicago and Sol followed him there. That's how he ended up at Chicago. Um, many people think he went there to study under Milton Friedman, but he didn't. He went there to study under under uh, George Stigler and Friedman was already at, at Chicago. And um, Sol did study under Friedman. Everyone had to take a, a price theory course that Friedman taught. Um, and and Sol, Tom did study under Friedman, but he was he was there to study under Stigler, and 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 that was his, uh, you know, that was his focus: the history of, of, of ideas. Um, and you know, Marx falls into that category. If you're going to study the history of ideas, Marx is a is a very prominent figure in in, in economic history. And so, um, it, it's it's not necessarily uh, uh, something that uh, it's not odd that, that 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 a Marxist would be interested in studying the history of economic ideas. You explained that George Stigler took a personal interest in Thomas Sowell and even went to secure a grant when money became tight. Can you tell me that story? Sure. And, and, and this is, again, shows how um, Sowell's talents were recognized um, uh, in his student days uh, when he was not writing about race. Um, again, which is something he's best known for today. So I, I think that Sol is someone we would be talking about today um, if he had never written a single word about affirmative action. Um, his work in economic history was recognized as, as uh, quite good. He published in, 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 in all the best journals uh, and published more than many of his peers in the academy when he was in the academy himself. Um, but yes, uh, when Sol was in graduate school at the University of Chicago, he was having some financial difficulties, and he was uh, thinking about just dropping out and, and getting a job in the private sector. And um, it was Stigler 
uh, along with Milton Friedman, who without Tom's knowledge, went to a foundation called the Earhart Foundation and secured a grant for him that allowed him to, to finish his studies. And the story uh, that, I, that I tell in the book is that the head of the Earhart Foundation at the time um, didn't know who Sowell was, but he said that if, you know, if Stigler and Friedman came to us and said we should support someone, you know, that's all we needed to hear and we would support them. And the man said that, that Stigler and Friedman said in their letter to him asking for the money, they said, you know, this guy Sowell is a, is, is, is a Marxist now, he's a socialist, but he's too smart to stay that way. Um, so even, even as Stigler and Friedman recognized um, uh, Tom's talents as a scholar, he was, still, he was still a Marxist at the time. They were just someone who, who saw that he was, he was going places if he had the means to com- complete his education. And so they went out of their way to, to make sure that, that he was able to do that. We have a clip from him talking to Dave Rubin about why he stopped being a Marxist. And it includes one of his famous rejoinders on the topic that I wanted to show people. Let's watch. You were a Marxist at one time in your life. Most people will find this hard to believe, but it is true. But it's not that unusual. Uh, most of the, of the leading conservative thinkers of our ta- time uh, did not start off as conservative. You had a couple like uh, Bill Buckley and uh, George Will. But I mean, Milton Friedman was, was, a, was a liberal and a Keynesian. Uh, Hayek was a socialist. Ronald Reagan was so far left, at one point the FBI was following him, you know? So then what was your wake-up to what was wrong with that line of thinking? Uh, facts. <laughs> Jason Riley, as we progress through his career, he was awarded his Ph.D. in 1968, which means he was on a college campus during the great civil rights upheavals of the 1960s. Where, where was he intellectually during that period uh, as all of this change was going on in the United States? Sure. So, um, uh, Sol was an initial supporter of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. I mean, even going back to, he, he was in night school at Howard when the Brown versus Board of Education decision came down and uh, uh, supported it, wrote, wrote about how class was, uh, they, they devoted an entire class discussion to the decision. Um, and he also supported the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, but what Sowell always cautioned is that um, these accomplishments, while making the country more just for everyone, um, and while applauding them, he says uh, they are not going to be enough to solve the problems of blacks, to solve the inequality that we see. More will have to be done, and it will be done, it will need to be done internally uh, among blacks as a group. Um, he, he's often said that uh, the problems of, bla- of blacks are, uh, amount to more than what whites have done to them or are doing to them. And, and so while he applauded these, 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 uh, uh, these, these uh, Supreme Court decisions or the passage of this legislation, um, uh, he was very cautiously optimistic about how much good it would do in the end. Um, but you mentioned about where he was in the 1960s, and where he was was teaching on college campuses. As you mentioned, they were changing uh, dramatically at the time. Um, there was a civil rights movement going on. There was a women's rights movement going on. There was an anti-war movement going on. There was a gay rights movement going on. And, and um, Seoul was rather old school and, and, and in terms of what he thought the point of a college education should be. You know, you're here to learn. I'm here to teach. No, you cannot be excused from class to go to an anti-war protest. Um, no, we're not going to spend all class discussing 
the latest newspaper headlines. I'm here to teach economics. That's what we're talking about. He was also a very tough grader. Um, uh, he, he wanted to teach the way he had been taught, and that was becoming increasingly difficult to do in the 1960s. And I think that's part of the reason Sowell ultimately left teaching. Uh, it had been his first love. It's what he wanted to do. His first love was not research, not writing books. It was teaching. Classroom teaching is what he wanted to do. Uh, but that became increasingly difficult in, uh, in, in the 1960s. Uh, he was at Cornell uh, during the big student uh, protest in the late 1960s when you had uh, armed students on campus occupying student buildings and so forth. And, um, um, and I think that was the real breaking point for him. And he would remain in teaching um, throughout the 1970s, but I really think he had one foot out the door. He was spending less and less time in the classroom more time in think tanks and becoming more of a public intellectual. And by the end of the 70s, uh, he was done entirely. He, he left UCLA and, and, and joined the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in 1980, where he had no teaching duties and can devote, could devote all of his time to, um, to research and writing books. And that's what he's been doing ever since. What should people know about the Hoover Institution? It's a, it's a think tank. Um, uh, started with a focus on foreign policy. Um, uh, Hoover is named after the former president, um, and but has broadened its scope. Um, but it's 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 located on the campus of Stanford University, but is in fact a separate uh, institution from the university, um, and and that's where Sol has um, has spent his time since since 1980. And I you know I, I spoke to a lot of people about um, the trade offs to use the 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 economic term of this of. Soul leaving teaching, and you know, some people are of the opinion that they wish he had stayed in teaching, despite um, uh, the difficulties uh, at, at the time. And, and if he had, perhaps you know, thousands of graduate students would have studied under Soul and earned their PhD under Soul, and he would have mentored them, and we'd have a, a a bunch more people out there who think like him, carrying on his legacy. And instead, he left and and went to Hoover, and has just been churning out the books and the columns. And, um, and others say no, you know, they wouldn't trade anything for all those books and columns um, that have uh, expanded economic literacy to, uh, to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, have been exposed to it. Uh, when Sol retired his column back in 2016, um, a newspaper column that he had been writing for decades, um, I, I wrote that, that some people just lost the best professor they ever had, even if they never went to college. Um, and so um, it was interesting getting the different perspectives of people out there who, who wish he had stayed in teaching versus those who are glad he left. He arrived at the Hoover Institution in 1980 at the beginning of the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. And you uh, report that he had, was sought after by, for a cabinet position that ultimately he did not accept. What was his thinking about politics as opposed to academia and whether or not he could have been successful in it? Well, I think Tom realized early on that he didn't have the temperament uh, for, for politics. Um, the, um, he doesn't suffer fools. He speaks his mind. Um, uh, when, when, when politicians speak, speak their mind, it's, uh, uh, they, they've misspoken. <laughs> so um, so Tom, Tom realized, I think, uh, early on that, that, that he wasn't really cut out for, for politics. But he did indulge some of the offers. He did think them over, particularly... Um, the, there was an offer to uh, to head the Department of Education 
And he, he said since it was an issue that he cared about and had spent so much time critiquing, he thought he should at least seriously consider the offer, and he did. But he ultimately, he ultimately said no. Um, one of his mentors, Milton Friedman, um, had, had also been enticed to join government over the years and always declined and, and told Sol that he thought, um, um, as he thought about his own circumstance, that, that Sol could do much, much better um, working outside of government in terms of uh, trying to influence people and, and, and the right way to think about things. So, so ultimately, ultimately took that advice. But yes, there were, there were constant uh, entreaties for him to uh, run the Department of Labor and, 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 and Commerce and other things. I was intrigued, though, reading that he had been a Democrat until 1972 and never actually registered as a Republican. So, but he was sought after by Republicans. Yes, yes. I, I mean, like I said, Sewell comes out of that classical liberal uh, tradition. And um, so what they saw in him was someone who believed in small government, um, someone who believed in low taxes, um, less regulation and so forth. So he, he clearly better fit the, the Republican profile. And if you read his, his writings, that's what would have attracted you uh, to him. That's, or those, are the, those are the type of thinkers who would have been attracted to what he was writing. So, so that's no, no surprise. Um, but but as, as Tom said uh, in, in, the, in the clip you played, um, it's not that uncommon at all for people who wind up um, conservative later in life to have started on the left. And particularly among blacks, um, you know, Clarence Thomas started on the left. Uh, Walter Williams, another economist, a libertarian economist who passed away uh, recently and was a, a, a lifelong friend of Thomas Sowell, um, uh, started out on, on the left. Shelby Steele, the race scholar uh, and colleague of Tom's at the Hoover Institution, uh, started out on the left. And these guys didn't, didn't just start, you know, slightly left of center. As we know, Tom was a Marxist. Um, uh, Clarence Thomas was a Black Panther. Walter Williams was far more sympathetic to the views of Malcolm X than he was to the views of Martin Luther King. Uh, Shelby Steele was a black radical in the 1960s. Um, so uh, uh, it, it just wasn't, wasn't that uncommon that, that uh, uh, this, this uh, Sol's uh, origins in that, in that sense. So I'm, I'm not surprised at all that as late as the, um, the 19, early 1970s, he was still a registered Democrat. Just to let you know, we have about 15 minutes left in our conversation with you. I wanted to go back to your comment about him not suffering fools uh, gladly. I started writing down some of the descriptions you used of him during the book, and they were included headstrong, willful, high-handed indifference, surprising self-assurance, a formidable debater. If you met Thomas Sowell in person, what would you get? Um, if you... if. <laughs> uh, I was, it, it's hard for me to, to, um, to think of meeting him without knowing who he was and having read him, because that's how I met him. And, and so I was already quite intimidated because he was such a towering intellect when I first met him. Um, but he did put me at ease. I mean, uh, he, he, he was very funny. He tells a lot of jokes. He can be very self-deprecating. Um, uh, but when, in terms of his scholarship, uh, and that's where where those, uh, um, the terminology that I used is really in reference to his scholarship. And that is where I, I believe he, he, he is extremely confident. Uh, he knows his, his material. Um, and and uh, he, he's someone who can sniff out sloppy thinking and sloppy reasoning from miles away. And you're just not gonna get it past him. Uh, and again, I, I think it goes back to that ri- rigorous empiricism uh, that he's been trained in, and, and it was maybe simply hardwired for before he ever ended up at the University of Chicago. 
You talked about the longevity of his column. How did it get started? And at its height, how many newspapers carried it? Well, um, I, I believe it was well over 150 newspapers at its height. Um, uh, he started writing uh, op-ed pieces in the 70s um, for newspapers. He used to write uh, pieces for the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine, actually. Um, when we think about the New York Times today, um, and, and you're very unlikely to read something <laughs> from the likes of Thomas Sowell or anything sounding like a Thomas Sowell in the New York Times today. But back in the 1970s, they did um, uh, seek out wider points of view. And Tom was one of the people that, that they, they turned to. So Sowell wrote five, six, 7,000 word essays in the New York Times Magazine back in the, 19, in the 1970s. Um, and he began writing a syndicated column, I want to say, in the 1980s, and, and that grew. He, he wrote it for newspapers, and then for a period of time, he also wrote a column for Forbes magazine um, that was quite popular. And uh, so at one point, he was writing two or three columns a week in addition to all the books. And, and it, it, it's amazing how prolific he's been, given that he did not, as I mentioned before, graduate from, from undergraduate college until he was already 28 years old and didn't write his first book until he was 40. Uh, since then, he's written, um, uh, I, by my count, I believe, 36 books, five of which have been written since he turned 80. So he's just been incredibly, incredibly prolific. And even though he has um, uh, retired the column, as I said, back in 2016, uh, he has continued to write books. He published a book on charter schools only last year. I don't think in either your book or your documentary I saw any reference to religion or spirituality. Has this been an aspect of his life? It's not something that he's um, uh, written about publicly or talked about publicly, so far as I can I can tell. Um, I, I, I do think he, um, um, uh, and I'm speculating here, that he uh, has some familiarity with 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 religions and certainly Christianity and and I believe that had been exposed to that um, uh, growing up um, um, and and I and I see that in, in in some of the language he uses when he talks about the anointed, for instance. Those are you know it's a that's a biblical reference right there. So um, I, I but but no, it's not something that uh, that he's written about um, either in his uh, in his memoir. Um, uh, or in my conversations with him, have I uh, had any discussions about that? So looking over his uh, prolific career, you open your book with an interviewer's question to him back in 2003, asking him, how would you like to be remembered? What is his response to this? How does he view his body of work? Um, I I, I don't think that Tom is much interested in personal notoriety. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I think the, the proof is in the pudding. Someone who is interested in, in personal notoriety, I, I don't think would have jumped uh, uh, into these racial controversies over the years. They would have kept their head down and, and sought out the various awards and, and prestige that, um, uh, that, that people like you know, uh, uh, the left-wing elites, particularly the black left-wing, left-wing elites, uh, receive today. So wasn't interested in that, uh, and 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 I think he, his career his career is is proof of that. What he is interested in, um, and what he said said to me and said in that interview, was um, that he's interested in his ideas uh, being out there, and 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 prevailing when possible in our policy debates. Um, uh, but it's not personal 
notoriety that that's driving him. He sees his work as part of a continuum. Um, he, he's just submitting to a, to a body of work that that preexist uh, uh, that preexisted him and will and will uh, continue to grow after he's gone. And what he's trying to do is add his two cents to it, um, uh, to this this body uh, of of work that's out there. And and I think that's that's how he sees that how he sees himself. But he's not in it for for personal notoriety. I want to spend our last few minutes together with a little bit on you. Uh, like Thomas Sowell, you are a senior fellow at a think tank, the Manhattan Institute, and you have a column in the Wall Street Journal. Tell me about your work at the Manhattan Institute. Where is your scholarship focused? Well, uh, I'm a journalist. I, I, I don't self-identify as a scholar or intellectual. <laughs> I ask questions. I write down the answers that uh, that people give me. Um, um, but I, I I write a column uh, focused mostly on uh, uh, urban public policy, uh, so uh, racial issues, policing issues, tax issues, immigration, uh, regulations, and so forth, and. Um, uh, I spent uh, more than two decades at the Wall Street Journal uh, prior to joining the Manhattan Institute writing about these issues, and I've continued to write about them uh, at the Manhattan Institute, in addition to um, um, writing books and, and, uh, and public speaking and uh, going on television and radio and talking about the things that I write about. So it's really a, a, a more of a journalist in residence than I am a, a, a scholar in, in, in these areas. But um, um, but Sowell's work has, has informed my thinking uh, for a very, very long time. He's someone I first discovered uh, back in college in the early 1990s when I was um, on the school newspaper and having a discussion with some colleagues about uh, affirmative action. And someone said, uh, Jason, you sound like Tom Soul." And I said, Tom who? And, and the person wrote down uh, the name of a book by Soul on a sheet of paper. And I went to the school library that evening and checked it out and read it in one sitting and, and went back the next day and checked out the library's entire uh, Thomas Sowell oeuvre and, um, and, and have been hooked ever since. And I first got to meet him uh, in the mid-1990s after I joined the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, editorial page, and he would come through New York on book tours and meet with editorial boards of newspapers, and that's how I first got to meet him. And then I later went out to Hoover and wrote up a profile of him for the newspaper, and that's when we sort of struck up an acquaintance that has endured uh, ever since. And um, I was quite shocked that he didn't have a biographer and, uh, and uh, not shocked that he didn't particularly want one. <laughs> so I um, set about over a course of about a decade trying to get him to, to let me write this biography. He told me to go ahead and write it without his cooperation, but I wanted his cooperation. And, and I didn't think a lot of other people would talk to me unless I had it. And eventually, um, uh, with the help of some of his friends, I think um, we sort of wore him down and, and he um, agreed to sit for some very long interviews for the book. So I was happy about that. If uh, your book or this conversation has intrigued people to learn more about Thomas Sowell's work, where would you recommend that they start? That's a vast body of work to dig into. Sure. Um, if, if you don't know anything about Tom and his writings, um, he published a book in 2011, I believe, called The Thomas Soul Reader. And it's a collection of uh, columns, uh, book chapters, uh, longish essays, on all manner of, of, of topics, economic history, culture, race, migration, um, uh, uh, intellectualism, and it gives you a nice sampling of, of Tom's work. And, and so you might wanna, wanna start there. And then if you wanna dig a little deeper, um, 
the book A Conflict of Visions, I think, uh, is the book that really explains the framework in which he's operating when he's writing about any number of topics. So, uh, uh, so that's another one you might want to check out. So last question for you. You described Thomas Sowell as thinking of his work as being on a continuum, and we talked about some of his intellectual forebears. Uh, what about work being done now? Who are the inheritors of the kind of thinking that Thomas Sowell contributes? Well, I would I would look to uh, basically if you if you name a black conservative, they've probably been influenced by Thomas Sowell. He's just been around that long and he's been that prolific that it would be hard uh, to find a, a black conservative who hasn't been uh, probably significantly influenced by Tom's writings. But I think you you see um, in, 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 in academics like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, um, you see uh, Thomas Sowell's thinking. I think in younger writers like Coleman Hughes and um, uh, Wilfred Riley, um, uh, you see you see some of some of Thomas Sowell. So um, it's it's um, he's had an impact. I think he certainly had an impact, not as big an impact as as I as I think he he uh, he should have, and that I want him to have, which is why I wrote the book and did the documentary. But he has he has made his mark. Jason Riley's book is called Maverick, the biography of Thomas Sowell. Thank you very much for giving C-SPAN an hour. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 